0: It'd be really awkward if we didn't come out for a while. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is John Freeman. I'll be your host for this afternoon's event, a conversation between H.M. Nakfi and Muhammad Hanif. Uh, the title of this um, panel discussion reading is uh, Lit Rising. And I think we can all agree that desilet has risen. It's been arisen. Um, it's actually fallen back asleep and risen back up. Um, and so we'll dispense, I think, with that uh, keyhole for the conversation. Because the real reason to be here is that H.M. Uh, Nakhvi and Muhammad Hanif have new books. Um, and they're wonderful, nimble um, political allegories and satires uh, about love and family life and life in Karachi, uh, as well as the absurdities of a militaristic society and war and aerial bombing and what would happen... If, for example, someone sent to drop a bomb on a, uh, a refugee village then crash landed right outside that refugee village. Um, the book I'm describing is Red Birds, which is Mohammed Hanif's third novel. It came out last uh, November in the UK. It's just out here in the US. And it begins when Ellie, who is an American F 15 pilot, crashes in the desert in an unnamed country uh, and wakes up. Um, crawling to safety uh, not far from the village he was supposed to bomb. And in the village we meet um, Mamo, um, who's a a, a teenage boy, 15, who has one copy of Forbes magazine, and on the basis of that and some late night National Geographic has imagined a life as a future entrepreneur. uh, We meet his father, uh, dear father, um, and we also meet his dog, Mutt, um, who has a long speaking part uh, in the novel. And if you weren't clear at this point um, in your reading of Muhammad Hanif that he's a huge fan of Joseph Heller, this book makes abundantly clear that this is someone who has studied and learned a lot from the absurdity of war. We know that from his biography. He was born sometime in the last uh, so many years. (laughs) Not sure when uh, in Okara, Pakistan, which is in Punjab. Um, He grew up and went to uh, learn how to fly planes um, in the Air Force. He was so good at it, they kicked him out, or he kicked himself out, um, and then moved to Karachi and became a journalist, um, and very happily, at some point, found himself in London, where he decided he was gonna start writing novels, so he went to the University of East Anglia and started taking classes there. Um, This is not the first book of his which begins with a plane crash. Um, His first novel, The Case of Exploding Mangoes, begins in the aftermath of the crash that killed Zeal Haq and unwinds all the wonderful conspiracies and hilarities and absurdities um, that a group of in-plotting people would uh, probably talk about and layer over the death of someone like that. It was a finalist um, for the Guardian First Book Prize. It was long-listed for the Booker Prize and it won the Commonwealth Prize. Um, he's also the, the author of the novel, um, oh God, title is escaping me. This is what happens when you try to do it all in your head. Um, Our Lady of Alice Bati, which is a novel about a nurse in, in Karachi, um, and all the things which happened to her. Um, we're also joined by H.M. Nakfi. Uh, his new book is called The Collected Works of Abdullah the Cossack, which is the life story as told to a kind of factotum about a 70-year-old diabetic lifelong bachelor who, on his 70th Birthday or thereabouts, uh, learns that he is going to inherit a ward from his favorite jazz musician. Um, And he sets off into uh, what was going to be a fight with his brothers over the building that he lives in and that his family owns, which is kind of a crumbling relic of their former financial empire. Uh, But he falls in love, he becomes a kind of parent And along the way, he gets roped into um, doings of the mafia. Um, We zigzag all across Karachi through his life. Um, The book is footnoted with some of the best um, guidebook notes you will ever get about a city. Um, And in this uh, sprung poetry of H.M.'s prose, uh, the city is one of the main characters. It comes to life beautifully and hilariously. Um, He is also the author, as you probably know, of the 2010 novel Homeboy, which won the inaugural DSC Prize, which is about a down on his luck, uh, former financial services officer named Chuck, who is driving a cab um, in the days uh, post 9-11. H.M. Nockfi was born sometime in the last so many years uh, in London, grew up in Karachi, was educated at Georgetown, dicked around somehow in the the slam poetry world, uh, wound up in that other dickish place, the financial services world, emerged with a heart, uh, went to Boston, learned how to write creatively through um, Ha Jin and other wonderful people. So I
1: was writing since I was a child.
0: He learned how to write better. from this university, um, and out of that time, he moved back to Karachi in 2007, where he's been writing about art, uh, writing reportage, but mostly writing these two fabulous, singular, hilarious, uh, and beautiful novels. It's a huge pleasure to be here with H.M. and Muhammad. Thanks for your patience for that introduction. Let's get started. <laughs> so I, I just want to start, um, by trying not to kill humor, by talking a little bit about uh, humor, because I think in writing, uh, both of you could be c- categorized as absurdists, as satirists, you use humor. Um, and yet, if any of you in the audience have edited work or written your own work, you know one of the hardest things in the world to do is to be funny on the page. And I want to ask you, you know, uh, how do you figure out to, to time jokes to the context of a scenario and make something funny without, you know, in your case, making fun of the thing that you love, which is this city, this kind of society that um, your main character lives in.
1: Hanif's uh, funnier than I am. Perhaps you should ask him. um, And he'd be more cogent. I think um, despite the sort of socio cultural uh, history that you might find uh, uh, threaded through the selected works of Abdullah the Cossack um, and the, the footnotes. Uh, there are, I think, 184 of them. Um, the selected works of uh, Abdullah the Cossack is fundamentally a character driven novel. Um, And uh, the character is a septuagenarian, weighing in at what three hundred pounds. uh, He's afflicted with various anxieties, uh, diabetes, um, a case of hemorrhoids, Um, and and so you know he is a comical, ostensibly a comical figure, um, but. he is like a, all of us here uh, in that he's basically somebody who yearns to live a meaningful life. And so, you know, um, I think of my books fundamentally as um, comedies, but there is uh, you know, there's this gravitas that uh, you know, the, the, uh, in, in in both Homeboy and the Selected Works, that contending with these socio-political uh, realities, and uh, it it can be heavy stuff. And and humor is a tool that you, one employs to sort of um, negotiate uh, the heavy stuff
0: haven't you ever noticed this speech pattern where sometimes someone says something true bitingly true and then they say a joke to apologize it and i feel like in your work or in literary work in particular um you say something true in the in the humor and then say something serious after and i i wonder if you can talk a little bit about that kind of inversion because the, you know what you described hemorrhoids are always funny <laughs> Side story, I once was driving with my brothers, and my girlfriend was in the back seat. My brothers forgot she was there, and they talked for twenty minutes about hemorrhoids. and she looked at me like, "Is this what you guys talk about when we 're not here?" And I said, "Yeah, pretty much. But you know you described how a person can kind of basically embody and make possible lots of forms of humor. But humor is often driven by uh, absurdities, you know the, the absurdities of corruption. The absurdities of, of a family at war with each other. And I, I wonder if you can talk about how you set up a book so that when you're using this kind of bumbling three hundred pound, you know, bowl in a china shop of a character, you don't also accidentally, you know, run over the things that you're trying to carefully write about because this is, you know, a very deliberate and exquisite book.
1: Um Hanif? <coughs> what do you think of uh, the selected works of Abdul uh, Adhagasani?
2: <laughs> yeah, know it is very exquisite. I, so. <laughs> I, I agree. Ag- ag- yeah. <laughs> yeah, come on, go
1: on. Uh, no, but, but about, about, about deploying
2: humor. I think, might, I think you might have noticed that talking about humor is the most unfunny thing in the world. Yeah. Because, you know, how do you make joke? Like, you know... And uh, I, think, uh, I think people who do write humor or satire, uh, I think they're having a really hard time because basically we're being ruled by big bad jokes here in America. You have Trump, like how do you, how do you make fun of him? I mean, I don't think anybody uh, can. We have similar leaders uh, uh, in Pakistan. Uh, that they are walking, talking, uh, cartoons. My cartoonist friends are kind of basically going out of business, you know? What do you what do, you do with, uh, with things like uh, uh, this? So I, I don't know. I think you might have noticed that in, in, in Pakistan and other places as well, increasingly, I think that's become something like people listen to comedians these days to educate themselves about world affairs. <laughs> somehow you know sort of jokes are being taken much more seriously than they ever were and uh, in pakistan especially i think that's the kind of mechanism that people have invo- evolved kind of dealing with the dealing with with their lives with dealing with the political situations you can just walk out in the street and somebody on the corner will be giving like you know sort of very profound analysis of the existing political situation and basically it will be a a joke. It will be quite uh, a, a profound, uh, a profound one. And these jokes uh, travel. I sort of old enough to remember the pre-kind of uh, internet era when we had a military dictatorship, and somebody will start a joke in Karachi, and the next day you, you found yourself in Peshawar, which is the other corner of the country. You will hear the same uh, joke. So, so you're basically surrounded by a bunch of jokers. You can't help it. So. <laughs> So if you listen to them, you end up talking like uh, them, I think. yeah.
0: One of the funny things about Red Birds is everyone in this novel talks in a form of bureaucraties. You know, the, 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 the downed fighter pilot is continuously applying rules about halal uh, food preservation in, in a part of the world where most people don't even have meat to eat. Um, and the... You know the other main character the teenage boy is he's basically sounding like he wants to have a breakout session to describe verticals and possibilities for income growth when his major source of non-income is uh is a falcon hunting project um talk a little bit about coming out of the background of of the air force where you probably were living in a blizzard of Useless people and useless terms. I, I never
2: I never crashed a plane. No, I <laughs> I'm kind of uh, uh, yes, but increasingly it's not just the it's not just the military speak. I I I don't know. You guys might have some idea that how many wars is uh, is America involved in right now. I don't know. People kind of tend to lose count, but we have found uh, we've invented a whole kind of uh, language to sort of to camouflage the 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 banal kind of uh, uh, cruelties uh, that happen uh, in these uh, wars. So we kind of, you know, train our soldiers to be culturally kind of sensitive and respect uh, their cultures. First go and carry out a massacre and then, you know, sort of say that, oh, we really uh, respect your culture and your, your religion. I think that happens uh, That happens uh, on the world stage increasingly. There's a whole kind of industry um, built around it where we keep telling people that, yes, we respect you, we respect your culture, we respect your religion, and then we go and bomb the shit out of them. Uh, and then we sort of keep saying those polite uh, uh, things uh, to them uh so i think that's where it uh, you can we can just uh you know sort of uh, turn on your news channel any news channel and from the comfort of your uh, living room you can watch uh, a war and americans have the luxury that they don't even have to tune into an international channel on any given day there's a small massacre happening i think within your own uh Borders. Uh, so I think we've become kind of increasingly uh, used to it. So I think one of the one of the motivations behind the novel was to take the reader by the hand from the comfort of their home and then just kind of take them to some other place where people are uh, affected by our uh, our. Because we we're very good at convincing ourselves that actually. We are nice, sort of, you know, peace-loving, tax-paying people. If people are being killed all around the world, it's really got nothing to do with us. I'm just sitting in my living room having my dinner, you know, sort of my organic chicken. I'm kind of trying to save the planet. So I think there is that uh, there is that disconnect that we're very good at, and uh, I think that's what I was struggling against.
0: H.M. and the selected works of Abdullah the Cossack, it feels like one of the activities that the novel is engaged in was a a kind of elegy for a a period, a cosmopolitan period of Karachi life that um, your main character is, is it's, he knows that other people aren't experiencing it and he knows it will probably in some ways the memory of it die with him. I wonder if you can talk a bit about recreating that time uh, because the, the types of um, uh, militaristic activity that um, Mohammed Hanif was just mentioning are in some ways made possible by the lack of context in history because you see something as, as perpetually troubled. Uh, I, I recently had a conversation with a friend who met a friend of mine who was from Sierra Leone and her first thing that she said to her and the only thing was the fighting is very bad there isn't it and my friend said you mean the civil war that ended uh, 10 years ago that killed you know 60,000 people and I think that that type of um, news cycle which constantly projects a place as one thing um, it feels like you're really going against that among other things.
1: From our vantage in, uh, what, uh, 2019, um, we forget, for instance, that the entire Muslim world a generation ago was secular, right? except for Saudi Arabia. But you know, Indonesia, Malaysia, um uh, Pakistan was born, uh, as a secular country. Um, um, so d- without that, without context, um, things don't make sense. Uh, and, 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 and um, to, so that is, I mean, you know, for, uh, th- like, uh, thoughtful fellow who wrote the end of history and all this kind of I mean, Fukiyama and I mean, as far as as far as Karachi goes and its past um, it's a storied past it uh, was uh, in pop in popular culture uh, Indiana Jones flies through Karachi to to Cairo right um, and um, um you know Bhavani Junction with Ava Gardner was set in Lahore. So there's uh, you know there, were, there was a reason that um, yeah so that that's some context um, my, septu- my my protagonist is a septuagenarian um, and inhabits the present and has to negotiate uh, uh, you know uh, present realities but, um, I draw on his past and, um, to reify, as you, you asked me, uh, to reify the past, to resurrect the past, um, I, after Homeboy, uh, was lost for a couple of years, uh, um, Obviously, figuratively, but sometimes literally, I would. Uh, w- uh, I felt I had said what I had to say, and I was done. And so I'd find myself sauntering uh, through uh, the streets of Karachi. Um, although my clan resides in Karachi, um, Karachi, which is the sixth largest city in the world, depending how you t- cut the numbers, keeps. Evolving and, and and dramatically, so there, you know, one one can spend a month abroad on a residency, uh, uh, and uh, the roads change, right? Uh, um, there are neighborhoods that um neighborhoods that weren't around um, ten years ago, like you know. Kaza- Kaza- Kazafi town, I can, you know, uh, Razakabad near the steel mills anyway. Um, so in my meanderings I would come across you know, um, uh, uh, you know I'd go to cantons of Karachi that I'm not very familiar with and I'd come across a, a house that to my eye uh, was a, perhaps a de- hundred years old. And in Karachi's history, which is a uh, Karachi only goes back 300 years, so it becomes a historic monument. And I would ask the kids playing cricket outside, whose house is this? In this lovely sandstone house with this, what would you would call like a uh, Indo Anglican aesthetic, um, uh, and. Um, they would say so-and-so lives here, I'd go back, make some calls, try to try to make my, well, get, get an invitation. And f- at first people be wary of talking to me. Um, and then they'd open up when I'd say, I just want to know uh, wh- how did you spend your childhood? Right? And, um, that, they would say that we would rent a tonga for the weekend, a horse uh, car- carriage, and we would um, go to Malir to pick fruit and, um, um, or rent a tonga and go to the sea and picnic there. Now you know, it was, and, and, and that's how I suppose Abdullah the Cossack emerged in one way. Um, I conducted and I, f- I just, f- I had nothing to do and, uh, and it's really, <laughs> and, and, uh, and it's, and, and it's, uh, it's idly, uh, idly intellectual curiosity as well. Uh, and, and so I wound up con- conducting dozens of interviews with old denizens of the city. And it was just, I mean, it just absolutely fascinating. Um, to hear tangible uh, details, uh, we have, have a sense that Karachi once was the sort of s- Indiana Jones flew through Karachi because it was the regional hub for all airlines. Um, it was a hub because, you know, Dizzy Gillespie would uh, sell out uh, concerts in Karachi. It was a vibrant jazz scene. Um, we had a. Um, a, a, a meaningful Jewish population, right? Uh, I went to the apartments, befriended the landlord, the son of the landlord, who had these gorgeous apartments where many many Jews lived, and there was a synagogue down the street. Now, if you have no context, you just think of Karachi in Pakistan and in a different way, but there is a context, and. Um, there's a you know there's um, there's, there's a certain cosmopolitanism um, that was of that time. Uh, Karachi still remains cosmopolitan in its own peculiar way. It's um, uh, the one of the m- most cosmopolitan cities in South Asia. Like Bombay is cosmopolitan. So that's you know that's I, that's how I went about. Doing it and um, and it it just it, it, it yeah. And, and Hussein
0: Hussein uh, lived across this era. You know, he was writing in the '50s and '60s, and he died not too long ago.
1: And you're really well read.
0: And well, didn't he write a book about the mar- a marriage broker in Karachi? Yeah. Um, and I wonder. You know, he wrote essays and short stories. And uh, Muhammad uh, Hanif, you. Also write political columns, and I wonder if if either or both of you have any, um, you know, in living through the time that you're living in, where you have to publish more of your political journalism abroad. If you take any um, uh, inspiration from or accuse from him as a figure, as as someone who was politically engaged, but who was also kind of telling the story of Karachi and his and his own work. <coughs> yeah i think uh, he was a he was a, a
2: grand old man in pakistani kind of uh, uh, establishment usually kind of uh, they decide to kind of leave them uh, alone kind of you know uh, they give them an award and kind of invite them occasionally to uh, uh, so so he was he was from a class of writers who were kind of you know sort of who've always been there who are 90 years old and you know sort of uh, uh, and they also belong to that uh, uh, the nice old world that, uh, uh, that H.M. has been uh, talking about when, you know, sort of. Uh, uh, but I think uh, 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 it's become much harsher place. For example, I work as a journalist. Mm, till one year ago, I was able to quite freely publish within Pakistan. Now one of my editors faces treason charges, uh, the other one has <laughs> uh, quit, and the yet other ones who still have a job haven't been paid for three months. So, so you can imagine the the level of uh, uh, level of motivation in our uh, newsrooms. Uh, but yes, I think I I did. I uh, sort of started out by reading in Urdu, oh, so I read all the kind of uh, Urdu classics uh, before I sort of started uh, reading uh, sort of fiction uh, in English. And I think, I mean, anything that you read when you're 10, you know, sort of, and you're completely, uh, and it's like in, a, in your own language, it's about world that you inhabit or which you kind of uh, are continuing from, I mean, that uh, that never, uh, leaves you. I mean, there is a, a bit of a myth that where do books come from? I mean, it's quite obvious they come from other books, uh, all the books that you've read, and they also come from your sort of uh, lived uh, uh, experience, and that can be, you know, sort of as in his case, uh, going out and hanging out in nice houses, or as in my case, just like you know, hanging out in in, in streets and uh, uh, and talking to jokers. Uh, so I think whatever we kind of, you know, read and whatever. Uh, so in my case, it mostly uh, comes from people on the street. Because of my journalism, I've had to kind of, you know, I have to deal with them more like you know, more prosaic uh, 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 level. Uh, so my kind of, I would say that it comes as much from, from reading books of Intazar Hussain and Abdullah Hussain and other sort of great Urdu writers. uh, But also from watching daytime television and, uh, you know, sort of uh, just uh, hanging out uh, uh, in the bazaars and kind of, you know, picking up their their language and their concerns. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you feel any kind of... uh, One of my favorite books of the last 35, 40 years from Pakistan was Sarah Soleri's Meatless Days. Mm -hmm which is an extraordinary book and, and so beautifully written, but this, it's a book wrestling with nostalgia mm-hmm. to some degree, a nostalgia for the period you were just speaking about. And do you feel as a journalist who, you know, as, as someone who's worked as a journalist for as long as you had, because you worked in the Urdu service at uh, BBC, do you, do you feel kind of, um, uh, not a, not a desire to push against that nostalgia. I, I envy people who kind of have that
2: luxury because uh, because there is a there's a certain kind of you know context as you say that you look at the pictures from 60s and 70s. So you'll see Karachi, Kabul, uh, Cairo, Damascus. What do you see? You see women in miniskirts. And the cynic means sort a of, So what happened then? You know what went wrong. Uh, So I am more interested in in that context. Uh, But also, uh, if I look at it uh, objectively, I was born in the year 1965. There was a war on. I was in class one, I think. with 71 happened. Again, another big bloody uh, war. And then when I was in high school, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan happened. Now, that war has continued for about 40 years. And whenever kind of people, young people especially, kind of say that oh, all these troubles started after uh, 9-11, I have to remind them, that, no. They started when I was in class eight. And now my own son is going to the university in the war. Still has not ended. The peace talks were going on yesterday and they've been going on for 40 uh, years. So sometimes you have to kind of uh, pause and think that yes, okay, uh, uh, we have evolved, our populations have doubled, our cities have, uh, uh, but uh, we used to have a very old problem and that uh, hasn't uh, uh, gone away. It's not really just a a Pakistani problem. I mean, around the world, you've seen, uh, I mean, what do we do when war starts? We have a standard kind of civic response to it. We kind of send in aid. We set up refugee camps. We send in Russians. We send in toys for the kids. And they kind of start living there. And now, you can see, like, uh, uh, from, Palestine to Kashmir to Afghanistan to Turkey, you'll see like there's a third or fourth generation of refugees who's kind of you know uh, growing up uh, in in the same uh, in the same uh, uh, places. So there is that context uh, as well, which uh, I think uh, uh, sometimes we kind of. Uh, uh, our kind of memory is short. We just kind of you know think that oh things just started going bad last year or two years ago, whereas I think the year I was born things weren't very happy and they actually haven't been that good. They've been kind of going.
0: Uh, is uh, your novel is set in a nameless country? Uh, it's the first novel, you know, of the three that that because you've also written a book on Balochistan, a short nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. Um, did you put it? In this kind of place inside your mind, so that no one could uh, could give you grief about it. I mean, because you you are saying some very um, uh, some very sharp things about. I think, as as Hm would agree,
2: with novels, like the most grief that you get is like from yourself, from the process of writing. There's nobody. I mean, that is the that is the that is the real uh, suffering. I mean, the rest is just like minor little ritual humiliations. That's the that's the real, like this one. Uh, but, uh, but otherwise, uh, otherwise you are. No, I, I, I don't know. It was like set in my head because I usually, when I'm writing, it took me seven years to write. I don't show it to anyone. People would ask, like, OK, if you can't tell us what's it about, where is it set? It's like in my head, which is a very, very messed up uh, uh, place. And I think also uh, maybe initially I was being lazy that if you kind of name a place, then you tie yourself into kind of, you know, oh, now I have to provide local color. I have to describe <laughs> describe the food and the streets and the smells. And it's like I'm sick of food and the smells and the streets. I kind of want to go somewhere else with this uh, So it started uh, like that. It wasn't like you know that. Oh, if I name a place, then you know, uh, then somebody is going to come uh, after me. And I think it's only later when you've done something, then you can start kind of you know ascribing noble, grand objectives to it. So after I think I was kind of near first draft and was thinking again about it. It was like, you know, refugee camps. I've seen a few. They look pretty much the same. There's not a lot of local color uh, uh, in there, and uh, and uh, the story starts with an sort of an American pilot trying to bomb a place. I was like, how many places in the world can I name where Americans are trying to uh, bomb them? So. So yeah, then kind of, in the end, something which was kind of quite uh, abstract, then sort of suddenly it makes sense. Or at least you comfort yourself that, oh, this has universal meaning. I, um,
1: um, you know, um, Chekhov was writing at the turn of the century about a sp- specific place, uh, a s- specific class, the anxieties of the Russian middle class. Um, but for some reason, um, Chekhov continues to have resonance. Is uh, one of the most translated writers in the English uh, into English um so and you know I mean uh, uh, gabo uh, uh, Gabriela Garcia Marquez wrote about the inter intercine sort of um wo- civil wars that have racked some faraway country but th- Hundred years of solitude continues to have resonance, and so you know, um, it's it's not it's you know I I think great writing transcends or good writing transcends its immediate context, Mm -hmm. and it's it's not merely about place, and and obviously uh, there's also uh, you know the reader brings. Mm -hmm. His or her own sensibilities to the to the work, and 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 so novels can be read in many different ways. Um, uh, Lolita can be read as an old a randy old bastard, uh, sort of who has this uh, uh, pedophil- pedophilia of ped- uh, tendencies. Um, one of my students at BU, um, the sort of uh, I had uh, a contingent from South Boston uh, who were Catholic and found uh, this assigned reading, Lolita, sort of uh, morally reprehensible, and so everybody read the same book, and but there was one uh, student of mine who raised her hand after this outrage had been expressed, and said something that I hadn't even, I mean, I didn't think of um, as, as the professor, uh, that actually, um, Lolita can be read as a metaphor for the old world trying to exert power on the new new world Humbert being a represents sort of a, a personification of, of uh, you know old Europe and and, and so I mean it, it was just so I mean it's how you read a book as well and um, the selected works can be read uh, in the, uh, in many ways it can be read as a allegory political allegory, a religious allegory. It can be read as a sociocultural history. Um, and it can also be just read like Ma- Madame Bovary, uh, in that you inhabit the head of a character. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, uh, you know, I'm partial to what I do. Uh, uh, but I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> Fiction uh, uh, is someone please tweet yeah. that. I'm <laughs> partial to what I do. H.M. <laughs> uh, um But I think un- what's so special about n- novels is that m- you inhabit someone's consciousness for for days, weeks, months. You live in someone else's head. There's, n- I don't think there's another medium that allows you to do that. A, um, a, uh, a television program lasts for, for about 45 minutes, a movie, um, an hour and a half. And in our relationships, you, you can be as close to your mother, your father, your children, your wife, but you can't inhabit their head.
0: Yeah. But uh, what's peculiar about both of your books in that regard is that both of them are spoken to us. We hear his voice and I'll come back to you with a question about this because I read somewhere that you write at night uh, until about four or five in the morning. And in one interview I read with you, you took a sleeping pill so that you could be awake during the daytime. So you were talking about how we read books differently, but you read a city differently based on when you go out in it. And when you were talking about when I take strolls around Karachi, I was thinking like at 3.45 in the morning when you're done with work, because that's a very different city than you would see at 9.45. And in your book, we hear from multiple perspectives. um, And I'm not just partial as a dog person, but the dog is brilliant. Over the course of this book, this dog goes from being you know, just a believable dog to a very philosophical dog. And I, I, I wonder, as someone who's written librettos, you've written plays, you've written for TV, um, and you've written novels in the first person, um, what's that kind of thing that you're trying to get? Uh, when do you know you've, you sort of have a voice down? Uh, <laughs>
2: I think when you kind of, uh, when you... When you need to call your therapist, I think that's the time <laughs> that you were, uh, you were uh, because uh, uh, as I said, I was, I'm was, i writing, uh, so I don't show it to anyone like till the first draft is done, and uh, you're obviously always uh, stuck, and it, this took me what, seven years, so I had kind of started it and then, so so Hm has been so sometimes uh, mm, sort of in the evening when everybody's gone to sleep, so you, you sit in your little uh, garden, and there is a a dog sitting there uh, looking at you. And usually there comes a time at night when he basically says, so what's up? (laughs) And you say, you know, the same old fucked up novel, not going anywhere. And I've had a sort of of quite a a series of heartbreaks uh, with dogs, so I try to keep them at a Sort of emotionally distance. I don't. Uh, so I do have a dog and I think I'm kind of uh, responsible. I take him for long walks and kind of, you know, but I don't, uh, I don't kind of, you know. So this dog is sitting there night after night looking at me, kind of, you know. So he's like, you know. And there was a dog in my book uh, who was there at some crucial junctures, but he was not allowed to talk as they should be, as I had learned in my life that you shouldn't listen to your dogs. Uh, And he would uh, um, sit there like, you know, that that you know what you have to do. And then that's when you think that you, because you've been sitting by yourself two, three years, nobody knows what you're thinking, what you're doing. And then you think that you're finally losing it because, you know, it's uh, not, uh, this is not. And then you sort of do the obvious thing. You call up your therapist, you do a couple of sessions. And it's helpful. I mean, we should all try it, but it, it still doesn't write your novel, no, because you end up in the same table with the same bloody dog still sitting there, staring at you. That what about me? And then one day you kind of relent and you say, "Okay, can I, you know, come on? Let's uh, let's see what you have to what you have to say." And, and surprisingly, so it's a, it's like one of those weird things that you shouldn't do. You know, I don't advise it. Uh, but uh, but when you kind of do it. Then you know, sort of, if you try it out, and then, and then you think that maybe there was, uh, it, it does uh, make sense in a weird uh, uh, kind of uh, way. So, so yeah, I, I think the short answer is that he just barged uh, into the book. I had no plans. I resisted till the very last moment, but he was like, you know, he had to be in it, so he got it.
0: Do you want to um, read from the book, and if not, just from the book, maybe from. What's perspective? Yeah.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm having these melancholic thoughts, sitting on the street, trying to shoo away the flies. These are the real nemesis. I have taken on a pack of deranged cats, avoided the butcher's bad moods. I even hope to outlive Mother Deer's misery but you can't win against these pesky flies. They are like a manifestation of God's irritation with his own creation. So I have no doubt that when I'm dead and gone, and my cadaver will be covered with these flies, and if I get a burial, as I hope to, after all, are all that I've done for this family, they will <laughs> manage to sneak into my grave as well. <laughs> I doze off fighting these little pests, and when I wake up, evening is approaching. A walk around the compound for evening inspection. And what do I see? Lady flower bodies sneaking into the, that deserter Ellie's shack. When they decided to put him up in this plastic cubicle next to the main gate, I had a pang of nostalgia. This place was my own personal love in a past place. I thought this boiled cabbage would use it for some higher calling. But he is using it for the same purpose I used it for. Momo has deserted me for a rendezvous with her, and now it seems she has deserted Momo for a world-class deserter. It's not just cheating in the traditional sense, but a grand circle of treason. I don't intend to present myself as some kind of infallible character, but increasingly, I'm coming to the conclusion that I might have more moral fiber than this whole family put together. That's why Momo runs away from me. He doesn't want to confront the sad truth about bro Ali. You're embarking on a mission to save your brother. You ditch your second in command for a few moments of humping. And when he returns, he doesn't smell of any humping, only the frivolous rot of small talk. I should know. What a shame. Now I feel bad for him. The boy deserves a hug, if not shameless humping. And this is only the third worst day of my life. There was another day. Oh, that really was the worst day
0: of my life. (laughs) So so Bro Ali is is, um, Momo's brother who has disappeared and gone to probably work for American contractors or the American military or has been traded into that exchange without his volition from his father. It's unclear, and one of the things the book drives towards is that uh, that revelation. As um, as he was reading, I was thinking about the fact that uh, Redbirds imports its uh, external observatory in the form of a, a kind of aid worker former spy who is there to write about the Muslim mind. <laughs> and she keeps interviewing Momo, asking questions, and he does a very good job of redirecting them back at, at her. And, and your book is mediated because it's told to um, Uh, Abdullah the Cossack's uh, ward, if you will. But it doesn't have that kind of same level of um, uh, imported outside perspective. And I wonder if that was uh, a choice of yours. And if so, why?
1: Because Karachi is kind of lousy with people who are there to study it to some Mm. degree. Yes, uh, uh, anybody who professes to be an expert on Karachi is lying. It's 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 it's, uh, it's a difficult city to uh, well you can spend a lifetime trying to understand the dynamics, uh, socio, sociocultural, anthropological, political, mun- the munis- how the municipal machinery works, the municipal machinery doesn't work, but that's not your question. Um, when I um, uh, I've you know now. T- Two novels under my belt, fifteen years, uh, and I've got developed a c- cervical issue in my neck um, because of it. So, I got trigger point injections before I left. Um, <laughs> um, so, I've got two novels under my belt, and uh, the the way I work is that I. Here I characterize it as as I hear a voice and um, and I go with it. So, for instance, the first page and a half of Homeboy didn't change in a, in any draft. Right, that voice uh, suggested not merely. The characters, but the trajectory of the novel, right? And with the selected works, also, I mean, I was sort of had, you know, done meandering the streets, and uh, and I mean, I one, I meander the streets often, but in this in this particular way that I was going about it. Um, one night, I was actually in um, on the uh, on Sea View um, and. It was late at night, it was 1 or 2 in the morning. Uh, I was sitting with some friends, and I felt compelled to leave. And I got home, and and I started writing. And it was as if I was transcribing a voice. And voice, especially in the first person, is fundamentally an extension of character. And so it was a voice that suggested who uh, Abdullah the Cossack was. Um, it was the voice. Uh, it was an eccentric voice. It was peppered with anachronisms, um, and uh, and again, the first page and a half um, has hasn't changed since that night, um, and. Um, Yeah.
0: Do you want to read the first page and a half?
1: Yeah, <laughs> sure.
0: He made that very easy. <laughs>
1: yeah. Let me go with voice. What what does Abdullah the Cossack sound like? What what, what does it, And it's something like this, my head is like a rubbish heap. You have to sift through the muck to find a working toaster. When I was 11, I overheard one of my brothers telling another that I am a bastard. They say if you scale the bluff by Shah Noorani, you happen upon the clenched mouth of a cave. And if, if you manage to crawl in, you are your father's son. I, I don't patronize Shah Nurani. If I'm a bastard, I'm a bastard. But... You might find me at the seaside shrine of Abdullah Shah Ghazi on a Thursday night, inhaling hashish among the malcontents who congregate on the rocky southern slant of the hill. It's always a carnival there, populated by fortune tellers, bodybuilders, thugs, troubadours, transvestites, women, and sweet, rowdy children. I am at home there. Uh, but when I enter the cool confines of Agha's supermarket to purchase smoked Gouda, uh, <laughs> shoppers part to give me way. Those who once knew me turned to memorize the sodium content and shelf cans of French onion soup. The last time I was dragging myself through the aisles, I called up, called out to this busty 66-year-old Persian cat who had just celebrated her 55th birthday. Although married to a portly patrician now, she would be at the Olympus in the old days, making eyes at the young men with carnations fixed in their labels. When I hooted, sweetie. She paused for a moment as if crossing off the loaf of bread on the list in her head. (laughs) Verily, decency is dead or dying. I have been mulling a project, some permutation of, of Mm, the mytho-poetic legacy of of, of Abdullah Shah Ghazi. Since since the fateful day, my father asked me to punctuate the following sentence. That, that is, that, that is that, and that, that is not, that is not. (laughs) Naturally, I retorted, comma after the six words, sir. Papa uh, could be difficult, but I knew then that he had, in in an indirect way, communicated his aspiration for me to be a phenomenologist, even if he would deny it vehemently afterward. There's no doubt in my mind my mother, an aristocrat hailing from an erstwhile martial state in the North, would have encouraged the project when She entered a room people squinted, as if she were wrought of light. If I close my eyes, I can recall hers, sunny and blue like the sea at Somniani. Married to a cousin at 17, the Khan of of this or that, Khanate, she ran away when she realized that he was only keen on hunting partridge. She met Papa at the Olympus in twenty nine when visiting an aunt twice removed for Haiti. She had five sons with rhyming names Hidayatullah, Bakaullah, Abdullah, Fazlullah, and Rahimullah. When Mummy passed, the family became fundamentally unglued. After retiring from the army as a major, Hitayatullah moved to a palatial residence in the suburbs featuring a diamond-shaped pool, while Bakaullah, once a card-carrying communist, immigrated to some dusty corner of the Near East, where he reportedly runs a transportation and logistics concern. Rahimullah, a.k.a. Tony, my boon companion, left for university in the United States of America before squatting on our estate in Sindh, where he cultivates dames and produces wine, our very own Vino la Tierra. I'm certain I was mummy's favorite. She raised me to be myself. I'm not a bad man, but not good for much anymore. I'm a fat man, an anxious one. The insides of my thighs chafe when I climb down the stairs from my quarters. I avoid loitering below because my youngest brother, Rahim Fazlullah, aka Babu, occupies the mezzanine with his twin boys and plane moon-faced wife nargis alas with all the charm of an opossum <laughs> the arrangement poses a bit of a problem because i love the children those those crazy little childoos when they when they manage to break free they sneak up on me like 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 those ninja warriors and clamber atop my domed belly. We sink, avoid, creep up to the roof to to observe the silently sundering clouds, the the odd meteor. We startle the nesting crows and put the fear of God in their black hearts. But when their rasping protests ring through the still of the evening, Nargis the opossum comes bounding up the stairs. does not approve and changes the rules all the time. Rule number one, no taking the children to the roof at night or during the day, the afternoon, or sunset. Rule number two, no feeding the children walnuts or custard apples, chili chips, sugar wafers. Rule number three, no singing Tom Jones to the children or Cliff Richard, Boney M, the Benjamin sisters. And even though I cradled him in my arms, carried him on my shoulders, even though I taught him how to whistle, how to say thank you, you he'd say, the aforementioned Babu is not an ally. Many years ago, he laughed when told I was a bastard. Like many, like most, he quietly judged me then, quietly judges me now. I don't care. A fortune teller named Sarbuland once told me, Tum, lambi race ke ghode ho. Or, you are the horse of the long race. But, but I'm not the same man I was yesterday.
0: Um, one thing we haven't talked about is that I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say this, is, this book is also a love story. Uh, Junju is yes. very, you know, is I think the reader is is aware much before um,
1: your main character is... Don't give away. Yeah,
0: (laughs) the, the nature of the relationship. And in your case, you've got a dog which loves its owner. You have a brother who loves his brother. You have a father who loves his missing son. And you have a downed American pilot who misses his wife somewhere in the U.S. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about threading love stories through the you know, the nugget of, of humor, um, and, and political satire, and, and, you know, why, why do it? I mean, cause the Our Lady of, of Alaspati was also kind of a love story, and I don't think as many people saw it because they saw the, the, um, the other things, the mafia violence and
1: whatnot. In, uh, our family, um, Mm-hmm. You know, my grandparents, my aunts uh, would uh, spout verse, verse, Urdu verses, um, uh, sitting down, getting up, uh, <laughs> you know, putting their socks on. There's an app verse by, must be an app verse by Ghalib on, about putting socks on. Um, and, uh, they say that, uh, you know, it has been said that Urdu is a, a language invented for poets, um, um, and in Urdu, in the tradition of uh, in Urdu poetry, love is, um, it's, it's profane and divine. It, it's, um, it's, uh, it, any any poem can uh, has this peculiar uh, facet where uh, the lover is talking to the beloved and um, or, or 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 thinking about the beloved and it can be profane love or the beloved could be god right and so l- love in the urdu literary tradition has This uh, variety of metaphor intrinsic to it, Mm. and I I mean, and so that's something that is uh, you know it's in my blood, um, um, and so (laughs) the love story in the Cossack in the selected works can actually be read in in. In different ways, yeah. and and you know, um, you you know, uh, you have hit upon the two of the most uh, you know humor and love are are sort of are uh, universal, and 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 those are and 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 I think those are really. Um, those are the sorts of things that compel, those love and humor compel me. And then, and, mm. and, uh, yeah.
0: How many, I mean, I don't know how many editors there are here, but one of the things I find it um, most distressing about submissions and is when there's neither. It's not funny, <laughs> and there's no love story. And I think, <laughs> <laughs> what, exactly. from what fresh hell does this come? And I thought, oh, reality. Uh, <laughs> did, but what, do you want to respond to what he just said about... Yeah, no, sadly, I don't
2: come from that grand Urdu literary tradition. So I have just have to make shit up. It's not in my blood at all. <laughs> uh, but I think HM is right. I think humor, love and humor are kind of you know universal, but so are sex and violence, I guess they're kind of... A, Uh, So, I I usually, my intentions are always, when I'm thinking of a story, I promise myself uh, every time that, uh, I mean, there's enough bad stuff happening in the world. I write quite a bit as a journalist, which is mostly about bad things happening in the world. So, it was like, since you're going to be spending um, a few years doing this, why not create something nice? Why not, you know, sort of... uh, where people kind of fall in love, and you know, sort of other interesting things uh, happen. And I always try, like you know, that why, since this is a little universe that you're creating, why can't you just, like you know, be a nicer version of God and not let bad things happen? You know, sort of after all, you're creating your own universe. Uh, but uh, but I don't know, like by the time, and I uh, by the time I get to page 15, somebody dies a horrible death or somebody cheats on somebody or somebody kind of uh, is thinking of cheating on somebody or betraying somebody so one uh, uh, one gets uh, uh, stuck uh, with the other problems of life but my intention has always been mm, to to write about uh, to write about love and hopefully write about it in a sort of in a nice lovely uh, life affirming kind of way but it doesn't like life it doesn't always work out like that <laughs> we kind of m- we mess up things yeah. um
1: i uh, don't want the uh, to for for you to have the impression that uh, uh, that there's no um, violence or or or, uh, or darkness there's uh, in uh, you know, bo- in both homeboy and selected works, and there's there's not a hell of a lot of sex, but there's a good amount of violence. So, um, and uh, and there's love. There's when you were talking about Karachi, I just
2: thought of this. Uh, but Karachi is like those you don't know. It's like a huge, big city. So, a few years ago, there was like some some weird news agency. R- ran this flash that uh, the Taliban leader Mullah Umar is in Karachi. Uh, So some Italian journalist of all the people in the world calls me up and he says, have you seen this? I said, yes. He said, do you know anything? I said, I have no idea. He's never called me. I've never met him. (laughs) I'm the last person to know. So he said, but you wrote somewhere about Karachi. He said, I live here. He said, I kind of moved here when I was young. He said. Can I just do a brief interview with you about Karachi? Like, what's it like living here? I said, yeah, sure. I can just talk and talk about Karachi. So he came over, and he kind of asked me, like, you know, when did I move here? What did I first do? And he said, what do you like about it? So I said, I come from a small town. And what I like about Karachi is that you can be completely uh, anonymous, so nobody cares if you actually live here or not. So he said, that means that Mullah Umar could be here. <laughs> 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 I was like, fuck
0: off. Uh, well, we've got a few minutes left, and I I, I feel like um, we we maybe can't end entirely on a love story, but um, given the topic, it and the fact that um, I don't know if you're coming from Boston or Karachi, are you from me or London? Where are you coming? Where am I coming? Yeah, where did you fly here from? Karachi, and you as well. So, assuming that not all of us here are from Karachi, and that you might have information that is Karachi-based. <laughs> Can you talk about someone whose work you've read recently in in Pakistan, who we that who maybe um, the audience may not know about? Because uh, you know, I think everyone here has probably read some Kamala Shamsi and some Mohsen Hamad and some Nadim Aslam and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But is there someone who you've seen um, read or read their books where you think, you know, I? I
2: I, uh, uh, I mean, I uh, You're better uh, read, read than uh, I Getcham's book, uh, I mean, a couple of years ago when uh, he was kind of enough to show it to me when it was in a draft form. So that was like very much like a big kind of, you know, Karachi uh, book. Uh, my friend Hassan Mushtaba, although he lives in New York, but he's a poet and he kind of write so beautifully and lyrically and kind of, you know, uh, with a lot of love and humor about Karachi. And I recently read an Urdu novel uh, uh, by a, a young uh, journalist. Uh, uh, it's called Char Darvesh or Kachwa. How would you translate it? Like, yeah. So that, again, is is uh, uh, was, was very funny, very kind of raw, very moving. And uh, I believe that it's going to be translated uh, uh, into English. So hopefully, uh, some of you will get to, uh, get to read it.
1: Yeah. When, I, when I was growing up, um, there were, in English, um, two and a half times I came across Karachi represented in, in, in fiction. Um, London, for instance, a city I don't know particularly well, uh, uh, but Hanif has spent time there. Um, when I first came to London, it was somewhat familiar because of Dickens. And so, you know, and New York, uh, with Walt, from Walt Whitman to uh, Catcher in the Rye to Bright Lights, Big City... It exists in a literary discourse. Mm. Karachi peculiarly doesn't, uh, there's this gaping lacuna. And, and, and so it was exciting to me when, as a child, I came across Adam Zaminzad's The 13th House and Zeba mm, Sadiq's 38th Bahadrabad and Soleri wrote an essay in Granta. Yeah, it <laughs> so that and I, it was it was sort of uh, very exciting to to, to see uh, this and in uh, karachi has figured in, in urdu literature um, uh, uh, but it it, it it was peculiar to see it uh, in, in, in in english um, but now there's so many novels uh, in the last decade, there are, you know, there is the, there, the, there is something that you can term the Karachi novel. So, um, young, uh, well, Bilal Tanvi wrote Scatter Hears Too Great and translated a book called Love in Chakyawara, which if you haven't read, you must read. It's funny as hell, and it's a and it's an excellent translation. And then there's Sabah Garachi, you're killing me. There is uh, Omar Shahid Hamid, who uh, has written a trilogy. And uh, you know, I work really slow. It's Fifteen years, I've only been man- been managed two books. And Omar has put out three in like four years or something. And uh, and so so there is this you. You couldn't, there, there was no Karachi novel. theres There's been a New York novel. There's been a London, London novel. But now there is, uh, I would posit, uh, a Karachi novel. Well, um,
0: there is a Karachi novel on a table over there next to a unnamed city uh, refugee camp novel um, called Redbirds. Um, H. M. Nakvi and Mohammed Hanif have been really lovely to to talk with us um, and to um, expose a bit about what their thinking has been. Um, does anybody have any questions for either of them? Um, there's a, a mic floating around um, on the uh, on your on your right. Oh, on sorry, on your left. Just raise your hands. Yeah, just just raise your hands, or just start speaking, and they'll catch up to you. There's one right here.
3: We've been talking about Karachi novels and uh, you know the kind of humor that I really liked, uh, the Lahore sort of humor in Moni Mohsen's books. Do you think that kind of humor is still possible? Mm-hmm. I mean, can you still come up with that? And that's for Mr. Mohamed Hanif. And, uh, I mean, uh, the Moni Mohsen style of you know satire and humor, like Diary of a Social Butterfly and all that, the sort of Lahore humor do you think that's still possible to write that kind of stuff and you know get away with it
2: i mean getting away with like it's not like robbing a bank it's like right? <laughs> surely you can get away with writing whatever you write and moni has a unique voice she's 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 great i don't think anybody can even try to copy her but uh, but yeah surely i mean um, there are other people who are kind of writing very very funny um, stuff and and getting away with it yeah <laughs> it is possible
0: there's another question of the woman in the pink sweater.
1: Although, uh, Moni, one of my favorite books by Moni is uh, The End of Innocence, which is uh, an account of. Uh, this
2: is not funny at all. This uh, is very sad, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the wars that you grew up with uh, uh, through the perspective of a child which is technically also a somewhat complicated feat a
3: question for mr hanif did you I, I know you grew up reading urdu literature did you ever consider writing in urdu or what drove the choice to write in english
2: i do write in urdu i do uh, uh, a lot of journalism in urdu i've written some plays screenplays in urdu uh, uh, b- and uh, Urdu novels, I, I I don't have read Urdu novels, but then, uh, then mostly uh, there are f- very few great Urdu novels. And the problem with reading novels is that when you start reading them, even if they are Russian or or or, or Spanish or Arabic, you end up reading them in English. So. Oh, and I grew up kind of reading all, all these novels. And then your head is kind of full of all these novels, stories that you've written in English. And the chances are that when you sit down to write a novel, you'll kind of uh, end up uh, writing m- like, you know, sort of in a language in which you've been inspired a lot. Also, you can't really make a living writing with the novels, so that's a slight problem. <laughs>
0: There's a question in the back.
3: Thank you so much. There's a. Uh,
1: there isn't a lot of writing happening in, in terms of uh, short stories. I wonder what you think of this because, especially in South Asia, there's been uh, the you know the legacy of Manto and Chukta uh, uh, and so on. But is it just a matter of sales, or is it uh, frankly that this genre is uh, you know dying out?
2: there are lots of short stories being written in urdu and and sindhi and uh, and hindi from what i know and bengali i think short stories are being written lots and lots i i don't know there are m- probably not very many short stories being written in english and you probably as an editor would know what the what's what's up with that
0: We have a lot of universities here, and so everyone learns to write on the short story and develops usually a a body of work of short stories, even if they're meant to be novelists. And all those universities are connected to literary journals like the Kenyon Review or Virginia Quarterly. And so in that cosmology, you develop by simple virtue of training writers a lot of short story collections. On top of which, in this country, uh, a lot of the glossy magazines, whether it was Life or you know Saturday Review or the New Yorker, used to be able to make a living. John Cheever did, Kurt Vonnegut did, writing Updike. Updike did writing short stories, mostly men, um, but there were a few women doing it, and basically you could make a living uh, as that. And I think in in when I went to Karachi in 2010, there was a a short story prize that I think Faiza sultan khan was involved in that was affiliated maybe with um, a bookstore and it seemed like there was some attention being shown on developing short story writers and you were very nice in that when i was at Granta, uh, um, hanif sent uh, a short story writer from urdu to us um do you remember that oh yeah i translated yeah, yeah you, I you translated translated yeah, yeah yeah and so it feels like
2: Part so there are lots of short stories be still being written in Urdu because uh, in Urdu the form is very well established and kind of has a has a long history. Uh, English, I think there are not very many outlets probably. That's one of the reasons. Like you can write short story, where are you going to publish it?
3: Hello, my my question is uh, directed to Mr. Nakhvi, uh, you just said at the outset of conversation that Pakistan was born as a secular country. This could be a nice fictional one-liner. <laughs> <laughs> and the history tells us just opposite. That there were, as we know, there were two countries in the world which came into being on the basis of religion. Mm. One is Israel and the other is Pakistan. Yet our pa- the last page of your passport says, Valid for all countries in the world except Israel, and I will. And just to put the record straight, the country called Pakistan came into being. So is uh, Pakistan qu- ka kya lai lai lai. Is that Thank
1: a you. question? Yes. Mm-hmm. What would you
3: would you would you elaborate it? That's or it pa- seems Pakistan it, a, a it seems
1: more like a comment, <laughs> um, and a sort of uh, a, um, sort of uh, political philosophy, but. Technically, Pakistan was born as the Republic of Pakistan. It was uh, subsequent to the Objective re- Resolution that Pakistan became the Islamic Republic. Right, so you're technically n- not quite correct.
3: This question is for Mr. Hanif. Um, I just want to ask you as part of your journalistic experience, do you think part of the reason that we feel that things haven't improved in Pakistan and they just keep on going down is because those who can afford to move out of it, who are, let's say, the voice of reason or who are educated or who are more secular or Mm. that way inclined, they find it just easier to plunk themselves somewhere else and have a happy life for themselves
2: no the really smart ones have a very happy life there as well they just send their children abroad from you know sort of uh, the even smarter ones send their wives to canada and live there uh uh so i i i don't think diaspora is like a huge uh, uh, huge issue uh it's uh, it's just that we've kind of evolved in a way that we kind of uh, uh, there's a certain class which thrives sort of basically uh because everybody else is kind of kept uh, in, this, uh, in this misery. So, so there's a sort of, uh, you know, it's not, it's not like a bad place for everyone. Surely they're like people who kind of uh, lead really nice lives, which they wouldn't be able to lead anywhere else in the world. No, uh, the question is not that mm. it, it's a bad place to live in. Mm-hmm. I think things don't improve there, because a certain set of people that could change things. I, I, I very much uh, doubt, I kind of, uh, I've lived uh, abroad myself, um, HM has lived abroad. I think uh, it's just that, uh, that like many diaspora kind of people we think that we are probably somehow better or special and if we had stayed we could have. So I have my, I have my doubts. I, I, I don't think it would have uh, made uh, much uh, of a difference. In fact, their politics seems to be kind of slightly worse than their, their kind of, you know, folks uh, back home. So I, I really don't have any high hopes of it. The, After the last elections, lots of people were threatening to come back. And it's like, no, please stay wherever you are. <laughs> <laughs> Serve your <laughs> adopted country. We can just manage without you.
3: Hi, sir. How are you doing? I was one, I was thinking about your comment about uh, miniskirts and what went wrong, and then I was thinking about how oftentimes when I've uh, read books with male protagonists, and even in the example you gave, characters often when they refer to women or observations of women, uh, focus on their looks or their charm, like the charm of a possum or the Persian cat. Do you feel a sense of responsibility when you write about women for your male characters to to change that idea that women are nothing beyond miniskirts or burqas? And how was that experience for you when you are writing the character of Alice? Did that come up, that feeling of responsibility to change that mindset? Thank you.
2: I think this is one of the most difficult thing to say, that actually what I meant was this. But what I said was exactly that whenever our secular past is kind of presented to us, it is just pictures of uh, clubs and women in night skirts and somehow we managed to believe that we had a much better past that is the representation that we are given and you know sort of you can find lots of features and, and things about this and I mentioned certain cities in certain places and that's how they were depicted uh, with Alice Bertie, of course I w- went through lots and lots of like you know how are you allowed to write as a mm, as a middle-aged man? Are you allowed to write about a, about a, a young professional uh, woman? So yeah, there was a lot of doubt and there was a, a lot of uh, angst, uh, but uh, it's only now up to the readers to kind of decide whether you know sort of they find it. Uh, Uh, they find it offensive uh, or uh, uh, not. I think, uh, mm, yeah, so, uh, I mean, you can't write something like this, like, offhandedly. You have to, uh, you have to kind of uh, think about these things, and I I did.
1: Um, You can't, you know, there's some of Abdullah in me, and there's some of... Me and Abdullah, but you can't conflate the two. This is the musings of a septuagenarian of a certain class, which is this aristocracy that resided in Garden East once upon a time and has fallen on hard times, right? Um, so that's why he uh, <coughs> finds women at uh, a supermarket that he. Uh, attractive and, and, and who don't give him the time of day. That's that particular. But, you know, as a, uh, there's a larger question here. Right? What is the responsibility of a writer? And often writers of our demographic are expected to also be activists and political Whereas Americans are not. So, I mean, Abdai can be as misogynist as he likes, and he is, um, uh, by critical consensus, a, one of the great uh, novelists of the writers of, in, in the canon, in, right? And Roth... Uh, Roth is famously misogynistic. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I, I don't. You know, you have to also think about what, what what the responsibilities are. And I think that you know, American novelists, for instance, I find which American novelist has written about the epic failures, consistent epic failures in American foreign policy in in the last 50 years right? vonnegut wrote about the dresden firebombing that's 50 years ago that's one that comes to my mind who is the american novelist that anticipated this dy- political dystopia that that you inhabit here with with uh, with, with the and uh, uh, who, 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 which novel which novelist writes about black rights matter, or or, or contends with this the surveillance state? The, these, are, these are the socio realities of our time, and uh, you know I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm very I, you know I, I you know I, I'll I love um, David Foster Wallace and uh, Rick, like Rick Moody, and um, really Doug Delillo once upon a time. Um, but who's writing about, uh, where, where, where are the American writers that are con- negotiating the sociopolitical realities of their time? And why? Are, wh- 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 why should we be the ones to, um to fight the fight well um I th- sorry
0: was there was there another question
1: Yes, I think I think in fiction, uh, women should be treated with respect, and so should um, men, and so should uh, Caucasians, and so should um, Asians. And yes, it's a it's a lovely, lovely sentiment that you expressed.
0: I think um, we're running short on time. Um, th- you were just speaking about the, the there's a, lovely question um, and the responsibility of the writer and Mohammed um, Hanif and H.M. Nakmi have gone beyond their responsibilities by coming up on stage and having to articulate what it is they're doing rather than just simply doing it and um, enjoying the billions of dollars they make in royalties um, which they enjoy as 37-year-olds Um, I want to thank you for being a very attentive audience for your questions. Um, Please check out their books. And thank you to Penn. Thank you, Muhammad Anif and H.M. Nafri.